Alyssa. My pronouns are she and her. And my name is Maria. My pronouns are also she and her. Welcome to LGBT Cliff Notes. Uh, I love talking about gay animals, and I know everyone mm-hmm. loves hearing about gay animals, but... Absolutely. I- I mean, yeah, they're great. Mm -hmm. I thought it was maybe time to take the focus off couples and mating. So today we're talking about species of animals with more than two genders. Woohoo. Fancy. (laughs) Fancy. Yes. Or, you know, more. Oh, I'm not going to say more evolved. That's that's Mm. fraught, but more um, more enlightened animals. I don't know. (sighs) Um, Anyway, many of the examples in this episode come from the book Evolution's Rainbow by Joan Roughgarden, which I believe I've mentioned before. Uh, It covers lots of great scientific information on gender and sex differences and sexual orientation. Lots more in both humans and non-human animals. It's a great book. I like it a lot. Uh, The other thing is, as every enlightened person knows, humans have more than two genders. Mm -hmm. However, a lot of people refuse to accept the fact that gender is a social construct and make tired claims about what is natural, you know, <sighs> natural and in the animal kingdom or whatever. Um, and sometimes they'll refer to animals to try to make their point. Well, guess what? There are plenty of animals that obviously exhibit more than two genders. That's what this <gasps> episode is about. So. All my examples are from animal species with visible signs of three or more genders. Uh, Things like courtship behaviors, body size, and color patterns that are easily visible to an observer. Someday, I hope we will be able to communicate with animals and ask them how they discovered they were outside a two-gender binary and what their journey was like. But right now, we pretty much just have to rely on what we can see as we I have a watch them. Oh, do you? I have a theory. Oh, yeah? I, I think when we communicate with animals and ask them about gender, they're just going to go, what the fuck is a gender? <laughs> yeah, no, that that is, I guess, yes, I completely agree. <laughs> that is sort of the point I was getting at. I was sort of facetiously uh, saying, you know, oh, hey, frog, how'd you recognize you were outside a two-gender binary? And the frog's like, what now? What? What? Fly. <laughs> yeah, I so no, I don't think animals have any concept of this shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but humans do. And because of the way that we study things, we put all these biases in. So, um, yeah, this is observable genders. Uh, OK, so also uh, there's going to be a lot of use of the words male and female for the sake of ease and convention. In this case, male refers to an animal that makes sperm and fertilizes eggs, while female refers to an animal that makes eggs. Obviously, you know, whatever, we could pick different terms, but that's convention, and uh, it'll be easier if we stick with that for now. So this is a perfect time to reiterate how much science is influenced by human prejudices, um, particularly heteronormativity. In the literature, oh, oh, God, (laughs) in the literature, I kept seeing researchers refer to animals with terms like sexual parasite or sneaker or female mimic. And even in actual, you know, scientific published peer reviewed literature, 
cuckold. <sighs> so I have some examples because you I I I was frustrated and I'm going to make you share my frustration. Um <laughs> the first example is there are fish that uh use the same nests. So when one fish is not spawning, another fish will lay eggs in that nest. And I found it really weird that this is called piracy. Like officially it's called piracy, but why are we not calling it sharing? Like why why is one of those fish stealing the nest? I don't see. So that's a really good example of how if you like very slightly change your viewpoint, it could be a different thing. So I mean, if you think about it, piracy is just sharing, but you know, forcefully. <laughs> what? Okay, I guess <laughs> Sure, I'll specify friendly sharing versus yes. forced sharing. Coerced sharing. Coerced, coerced sharing. Reappropriation. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, okay, so another example is um, in male bullfrogs, there are two stages. Uh, both are at sexual maturity and able to mate. The older male bullfrog is larger and croaks a lot. And the younger male does not croak and is a little bit smaller. Females mate with both, but scientists refer to the smaller quiet male as a, quote, sexual parasite. Um, and I don't, I assume this comes from the idea that larger males are doing a bunch of work by croaking to attract females. And the quieter males are parasites because they're not croaking. Um, but this seems really unfair. And again, I can think of so many other interpretations offhand, like maybe the older bullfrogs like the sound of their own voice. Maybe older bullfrogs appreciate not being drowned out by young bullfrogs. Maybe bullfrog croaking is just how females locate males. But once she's there, she doesn't necessarily prefer the large, loud frogs. Maybe... Even these small, quiet frogs set the female up to mate with larger frogs. There are mm. tons of explanations for the same observed behavior. And using a label like sexual parasite encourages people not to think beyond this super, very particularly human viewpoint. It's, it's, <sighs> yeah, a very frustrating term. And I have just one more that is... The most infuriating and ridiculous and upsetting to me, um, and it is the use of the word cuckold, which is the most absurd example I came across. Um, it is used when referring to fish who generally mate when a female just quickly enters a male's territory, lays eggs, and heads out. So you can see, like, already... Cuckold is a weird word to describe anything in this behavior. Um, but cuckold is the label that is given to smaller males mating with a female, as if larger males are in some kind of monogamous relationship with the females. They are not pair bonded. Fish mating is generally a very brief encounter and usually involves many different pairings. Um, and yet, yeah, if you if you read through literature, instead of calling it, I don't know, the smaller male or some other neutral term, like throughout a scientific paper, they will call the smaller fish cuckold. Like that's its category. So <laughs> I can almost see 
this like male fish fish researcher associating himself with you know the big fish and his territory <laughs> and this scientist is personally affronted when he notices a smaller fish come in to fertilize <laughs> quote unquote his eggs <clears throat> so of course he's going to call the smaller fish cuckolds because he has this weird attachment to larger fish being somehow better or whatever um, but again, you can imagine the fish themselves viewing the arrangement completely differently. <sighs> so I really hate that. And it is really common across um, many, many different kinds of scientific literature to use words as a shorthand that are... I, and I love shorthand for things, but as long as they're descriptive and not necessarily mm, referring to a behavior, like I feel like they should be more neutral. Mm. Uh, because these terms evoke human ideas that obscure an animal's actual behavior, and animals don't give a fuck about our ideas of monogamy and gender and heteronormativity. Um, so I avoid these human-centric terms in this episode, and I, I do my best to use neutral language, which unfortunately could be seen as somewhat unscientific that I'm not using the established ridiculous terms for these things. Right. <laughs> okay. So. Now let's get to the animals. I will start with a fish that many of you know, coho salmon, which you've maybe eaten before. Um, mm. They live in the Pacific. There are two males um, in coho salmon. They are nicknamed Jack and Hooknose, which I find I don't I actually tried to find where Jack came from. So I don't know if that's pejorative in some way, but mm. Hooknose is descriptive. So totally cool shorthand. Um, <laughs> the... Jack spends two years in the ocean before traveling to streams to breed, and the hooknose spends three years in the ocean before breeding. Jacks are small and colored to camouflage with the environment. The hooknose is large, brightly colored, and, yep, has this... <laughs> it's uh, very weird-looking, a little, like, nose-like protuberance that looks like a hook. Um... But yeah, they're they're very different looking than the jacks. I if I if you put them in front of me and I had not already researched this, I would call them two different species species of fish. But they're not. They're just two different males of coho salmon. Okay, so female coho salmon make a nest in gravel and lay their eggs. The closest male fish gets to fertilize the most eggs. Large hook-nosed males are good at fighting for a position near a female because they're big and they can, I don't know, do fish fights better. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the small camouflage jack males use the strategy of quickly darting in to fertilize as the female is laying eggs. So they just have two different ways to reproduce. Mm -hmm. In a given year, the large hook-nosed fish will fertilize more eggs but as I said earlier, the smaller jack male only spends two years in the ocean before breeding, so it breeds one year earlier than a hooknose born at the same time. Hmm. So there's no real advantage to being one type of male or the other, um, and both of them persist in the same species because they are both successful at mating. Hmm. And I... I started with this one, and I think it's really cool because I think we're all very familiar with salmon... But never in my life have I walked past, like, the fish aisle and been like, high five, salmon, go you, with your, like, three obvious genders that are completely different. I mean, I am now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Every time you're at the grocery store, be like, yep, 
that that right there everyone see this example the salmon yeah it's got more than two genders so total strangers telling them about fish gender i mean <laughs> that's that's glo- that's goals yeah yeah i i would not put it past me um so <laughs> also atlantic salmon have a similar arrangement of genders they have larger males that migrate to the sea and return to breed in about five years and smaller males that don't travel to this sea and mature in three years Again, larger male, good at defending access to the female, but smaller male, able to dart in and fertilize some eggs with the added advantage of reaching sexual maturity two years earlier. So these are all really good strategies. And um, yeah, there's no reason there's there's no reason for the fish to just have two genders. (laughs) And I, I would not be surprised. This is another thing when I do these episodes is like, yes, these are specific documented examples. But the more I read about them the more I'm like, oh my God, there's probably so many other animals that are not documented that have all these different strategies that we could call different genders, but we don't really look for them. And again, we're looking through this human lens where we're expecting a gender binary. And mm. I, I, I don't think that that's a real biological fact. <laughs> anyway, um, another fish with two males and one female, is a species that lives on the Pacific coast. It has bioluminescent spots, which is really, honestly, the main reason I wanted to read about it more, because um, I did not know that there were fish on the Pacific coast with bioluminescent spots. Um, And in fact, I guess, like, if you live in San Francisco, like, these are fish you can see in the San Francisco Bay. Who knew? Okay. Um, So... (laughs) The spots on it um, look like the buttons on a Navy uniform. So whoever found this fish named it the Plain Fin Midshipman. Um, uh, that's slaps, though. <laughs> that's I mean, so I creative. I love it. If someone said, hey, check out that Plain Fin Midshipman, I would not know to look for a fish. Um, like, I don't. <laughs> plain Fin Midshipman? Is that, is that that guy over there? Is that what he's called? The Plain Fin mm. Midshipman? I don't know. Um, it's also called uh, the California singing fish or the canary bird fish because one of the genders emits a humming sound when it's ready to mate. Huh. So I, does, I feel like. Do, do yeah. you know how it does that? Is it like with the fins or. Um, OK, so it does. I know it has sound producing muscles and I do think it is some mechanism with the gills but i would not quote me on that i'm not sure so the plain fin midshipman has three observable genders one female and two male again the males again are split by body size and behavior the larger male is the one that hums which attracts female fish to lay eggs in his territory there is also a smaller male that does not hum they don't have their own territory they just quickly dive in to a larger male's territory and fertilize the eggs that are already there This fish is also interesting because there are a number of biological differences between the large male and small male that extend beyond their size. And I thought it was really cool that someone had looked into this. So the larger male has way more sound producing muscles. The males differ in number of mitochondria, structure of their endoplasmic reticulum, skeletal muscle size, neuron size, a bunch of, you know, cellular level shit. So the point here is that. It's not just a difference in size that is making these males different. It's not that one simply grows larger than the other. 
the two male genders develop completely differently and have distinct biological characteristics down to the cellular level. Another well-known fish, and this is, this is the last fish, I know, um, <laughs> has three males and one female, the sunfish, and I immediately thought of that giant squashed-looking fish you often see in aquariums, but that apparently is the saltwater kind of sunfish. So the sunfish I'm talking about uh, is a freshwater fish, which is much smaller and very common in North American lakes. Uh, mm. Some people will call it a uh, bluegill. I think the full name is technically like bluegill sunfish. Um, but they've been extensively studied, uh, I assume, because they're very common. So it's a convenient fish to study. Right. There are three males classified as large, medium and small. <laughs> um, they also differ in coloring. So large males are about six and a half inches long. They mature at seven years old. Uh, they have a light body color and are yellow orange on the bottom. Medium males, four inches long. Mature at four years old, dark body with dark vertical stripes. Small males, three inches long, mature at three years old, uniformly light colored. In fact, <laughs> I, lo I love that they looked into this. Small males are so small that their testes often take up most of their body. It will <coughs> displace, they'll displace their stomach and intestines. Wow, that's nuts. <laughs> Sorry. Oh my God. Thank you. That's beautiful. That's, you know, that's, that's why you're my co-host. <laughs> uh, yes, they are nuts. Okay, so <laughs> back to science. <laughs> Sorry. The small and medium males follow the same developmental path, meaning small males transition into medium males once they're old enough. However, the large male is of a completely separate developmental path, meaning he's not sexually mature and able to mate until he hits maturity at seven years old so like the um plain fin midshipman there's two actually biologically distinct you know down to these cellular molecular levels in the sunfish as well hmm. so female bluegill sunfish are smaller than larger males but larger than medium males they're a little under five inches long they have a dark body color with vertical bars, which is the coloring of the medium males. In fact, medium males pretty much look like small, young females. <laughs> I looked at a lot of pictures of bluegill fish, and I would definitely have a hard time telling the two apart. Um, but I mean, I'm also not a fish expert. So <laughs> I also gleaned from the papers that I read that Bluegill researchers have a hard time telling them apart visually as well. They usually like take them out and um, sex them like genetically or look for testes or whatever. Mm -hmm. So unlike Pacific salmon, it is the male sunfish that makes nests. They use their tails to scoop out a little hole in the mud along the bottom of the lake. And about 100 large males create nests near one another. Female sunfish... Uh, really like laying eggs in areas with lots of males and don't visit nests that are more isolated. Uh, they assume because the females feel like their eggs will be more protected if there's more males. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so they only, there's one day a year that bluegill sunfish mate. And during this one day mating bonanza, females will show up in a school and they disperse among the males. Females spawn in many nests, and one nest can have up to 30,000 eggs from a whole bunch of different females. Damn. So that's the large male sunfish, but what about the other ones? The small males, uh, like we've seen before, hang out on the periphery and hide in rocks or plants, and they use the strategy of quickly darting in to fertilize eggs. Of course, large males try to fight them off, but there's about seven small males for every larger male. So the small males can be successful while large males are off chasing another fish. And the reason I'm getting into so many of these details, you might be like, who gives? Oh, my God, this is way more than I ever fucking needed to know about fish. I totally agree. But what's really interesting about the bluegill sunfish are the medium males and what they can tell us about not only multiple genders in fish, but how scientists interpret what they see in animals. Mm -hmm. So the medium males are more of a mystery. No one knows where they live most of the time. But oh. since they're similarly colored to the females, one hypothesis is that they school with the female fish. And the medium males also have a completely different strategy for mating. I love this. I got, I got so excited to read about it. Instead of building their own nest or sneakily darting in, like we've seen in my other fish examples, the medium males appro approach a large male's territory from above. No aggression, no hesitation. They enter the nest area. The two males perform the sunfish courtship ritual of swimming in little circles around the nest, with the medium male eventually joining the large male in his territory. And I just, okay, so already this is, this is very different from what we've seen. And, um, I love it because I totally anthropomorphize and see some homosexual tendencies here, mm -hmm. but that's anthropomorphizing. <laughs> the, there are like several other interesting facts. The large male, as I said, will drive away small males, but he does not try to drive away a medium male that comes mm. to his nest. And then when a female shows up to a nest with two males, a large and a medium, they will all carry out courtship and mating together, both males fertilizing the eggs the female releases. <sighs> I And at this point, I had so many questions. I was like, this is so interesting and amazing. And so my first thought was, all right, the medium male resembles a female. So does the large male let the medium male stay because he thinks it's a female, so it's no threat? Um, there are some older papers from the 80s that seem to think the medium male is successful because he mimics the female. In fact, ugh, a lot of papers refer to the medium male as a female mimic. However, hmm. I found many facts that seem to dispute this hypothesis. So the first fact I found is that large males eventually chase females from their nest when they're not actively mating. When the medium male first enters the large male's nest area and they perform their adorable little fish circular swim of courtship, the large male must realize the medium male is not laying eggs. They do not perform the mating part of courtship that a large male would perform with an actual female. Hmm. The second fact 
uh, as I mentioned, the medium male and large male perform courtship and mating together with one female in a three fish ritual. However, if there are two females in one large male's territory, he only courts and mates with one at a time. The two females will not engage in the three fish ritual. So this large male can like clearly those two facts together. The large male does not think that that medium male is a female that I don't buy that. So also, I mean, people love to be, it seemed like the main support for the very early papers was like, oh, ha ha, large sunfish, you know, they're fish, they can't see very well. So, you know, even Mm. though the medium male is smaller than a female fish, eh, they're pretty similarly colored. You know, is the large sunfish really going to be able to tell a difference? And I would argue that, yes, the large sunfish can. Um, Sunfish eat teensy tiny little shrimp, and they have really demonstrably great eyesight because they distinguish which shrimp are large enough to chase and which shrimp are so small that they're not even worth it. So they can detect the difference between a one millimeter and a two millimeter shrimp. So even though the medium males are about an inch smaller than females, I t- I mean, come on, the large males mm. have to be able to tell the size difference. So yeah. you can really tell how much people were introducing these very human biases to try to explain like, oh, well, we can't just have two males mating with one female. That doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, all these facts demonstrate to me that the large male is not mistaking the medium male for a female. Yeah. Sorry about your fucking heteronormative bias, scientists. Um, you're wrong. I mean, ugh, that's a fair theory, but I mean, like you said, it just doesn't hold up. I don't yeah, think Yeah, there's either. like some very simple facts and ways to test. And it's amazing that like so many papers went through because, well, I mean, I know why they did, because it was a bunch of, you know, straight white dudes being reviewed by other straight white dudes. So no one was ever like, but wait a minute, <laughs> have you checked this fact or like, That's kind of a weird thing. You know, here's a way to check whether or not the large male is mistaking the medium male. Um, Uh, Heteronormativity. Yeah, it's it's really I mean, it's it's a problem in so many ways, including, uh, you know, in biasing facts in science. Um, And I I am one part very giggly and like, ah, ha, ha, so ridiculous, stupid scientists. Mm. And then the other part is like, oh, we've been missing so much, so much <laughs> by <laughs> taking these views of things. So um, the next question is, do large males actually accept a medium male into their territory, knowing that they're a medium male? And at the risk of anthropomorphizing, I really like the theory that is put forward by the author of Evolution's Rainbow, Joan Roughgarden. So large males are very aggressive. They fight with other males, and they will even sometimes fight with females. Hmm. And the one theory is that the medium male might act as a way for the large male to show he won't hurt a female fish who approaches his nest. The medium male looks like a smaller female fish, so if the female sees the large fish getting along with this other smaller fish, uh, she might feel assured that she will not be attacked. And furthermore, in the three-fish courtship and mating ritual, the medium male swims between the large male and female. So the medium male might be buffering the the female from the large male and makes her feel a little more protected. Which, again... 
very anthropomorphizing, but also like if the large male does attack female fish, I can totally see like even stripping it of our like, oh, burly muscular man beating on little <laughs> tiny woman, you know, mm. the, the female fish doesn't want to be attacked. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it does seem like a bit of a stretch, but another thought is that since medium males might school with the females during the rest of the year, medium males might have formed a relationship with the females. They might be more familiar with them. Um, again, I think the females would recognize them as being like a little smaller and different. Um, but if they all school together, the females will be like, oh, well, this is, you know, this is a safe male. Um, and so the medium male hanging out in the large male's nest is could be sort of vouching for the safety of the large male and saying, like, look, he's not attacking me. Totally safe. Come mate with us. Hmm. And <laughs> once I had read all these facts, it I very I mean, this is not my field at all, but it seems like these would be so easy to test. And I spent some time looking for hard data to try to maybe pull my own analysis from. Like, for example, if a medium male helps attract a female to a large male's nest, we would expect to see more females approach nests with two males, right? Because mm -hmm. that, you know, the theory is that the medium male is helping females come. Right. So if nests with a medium male are the better mating strategy, we might expect there to be more two male nests than one male nests. Um, however, Evolution's Rainbow says that 85% of the nests with spawnings only have one male. But then I looked and found another paper from 1980 that notes that some colonies have a majority of nests with two males. So it seems like there's not enough data and we might, in fact, be seeing very different mating behaviors in different environments, um, which I think is totally fair. We have this idea that, like, we're going to be able to come up with one solution for everything, but, like, there's no reason why all bluegill sunfish everywhere will be exactly the same. Um, and I think it might be impossible to claim that at all. So mm -hmm. uh, another, just just to support my theory, there's uh, an obvious difference I found while reading primary papers in the age of bluegill sunfish. So in one paper, in one area, most medium males in a population are age four, large males, eight or nine, while another paper in another area showed most medium males are age five to six and most large are age six. Huh. Um, these are super major differences and counting a fish's age, like I don't, it's not a methods problem because... I read the methods and counting a fish's age, if you know how to do it, I guess, is pretty straightforward and easy. Um, okay. But the difference between the papers is one is sunfish from a lake in Ontario, and the other is fish from a lake in New York. So basically, mm. uh, it is a very, like, so much of science. It is a very complicated story. What's certainly true is there are a bunch of male genders in uh, bluegill sunfish. And the medium males have this really interesting mating strategy that has been studied for, God, I guess like 40 years now, but in the beginning was studied with a very ridiculous bias. So we definitely need more papers done by more diverse scientists collecting mm -hmm. facts and analyzing them outside of uh, heteronormative 
thought. So yeah, it might be another lifetime before the questions are completely fully answered, but it seems like, all right, some sometimes medium males are really advantageous and sometimes not. Or maybe people are just bad at collecting data because they're expecting certain things. Uh, science isn't perfect, but what is a fact is these fish have a bunch of genders and uh, that's cool and great. And um, I like it. I I personally, I, I just got to say, I'm super excited about the fact that now I can start talking about fish polycules. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 again, it's anthropomorphizing that one day we'll find a good, we'll find a good alternate for that word. Anthropomorphizing. (laughs) But people, if you say anthropomorphizing, I mean, you know, people know what you're talking about. Language is just about communicating. It doesn't have to be the right word if you get your point across. But still, fish polycool. That's just, there's, there's a, it's got, it's got a good ring to it, you know? (laughs) And you say it to just a random person, they're going to be like, what the fuck are you talking about? What the fuck are you? Are you just making this shit up? Like, why do you got to bring, you know, your stupid gay shit into everything? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. actually, here's this fun paper. <laughs> yeah, because it's facts. Yes. It is true. Bluegill Sunfish Man, look them up. Okay, so that's all my fish examples. <laughs> um... <laughs> I do have examples from other animals. Yay. So now I'm going to talk about tree lizards living in the southwest of the United States. Um, The particular data that I have is from a population of tree lizards that lives near the Verde River in Arizona. So Mm. if you are from that area, maybe you have seen these lizards. Uh, They come in a variety of colors. Nine different colors for the males are known. Uh, with up to five different colors of males in a single population. So in this population near the Verde River, there are two different colors that account for about half of the males. One type of male coloration has a bright blue stomach and bright blue dot on his chin, and the other has an orange stomach and chin. Um, Not only are the colors different, but these two males also have different body types and exhibit different behaviors. So blue males are more aggressive. They have short, stocky bodies. They defend territories that overlap with home ranges of up to four females. Orange males have the same weight as blue, but they're longer and leaner and not as aggressive. They, uh, depending on what the weather is like, orange males have different behaviors in a dry year. The orange males spend a day or two at a site and they don't defend territory at all. Mm-hmm. In a rainy year, the orange males settle down and occupy a small territory about the size of a female's home range. So That makes sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm going to get m- more into it because the especially cool thing about these tree lizards is that people have studied the hormones that are involved in how the male lizard develops and behaves. So high progesterone when the lizard hatches means he develops into an aggressive blue lizard and low (sighs) progesterone means a leaner, non-aggressive orange lizard. So um, (laughs) if you've listened to the hormones episode, I know it was a while ago, but uh, you can see some parallels of like there is a specific sex hormone that can completely determine the fate of what a body develops. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I love I love the way that they discovered us. 
discovered this like high progesterone versus low progesterone development. Um, very simple experiment. They literally took newborn tiny baby lizards, injected them with progesterone. <laughs> and one single injection on the day of hatching means that a lizard becomes an aggressive blue lizard. That's all it takes. <laughs> that one hormone. Wow. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So anyway, the low progesterone levels that result in the development of an orange lizard also result in orange lizards producing less testosterone when they're stressed. So as I mentioned before, um, we're seeing these two completely develop or different developmental pathways, whereby this one concentration of progesterone will send the lizard along a completely different developmental path. And that's what makes the orange lizard produce less testosterone when it's stressed. It all goes back to it having low progesterone when it was born. Huh. Um, so a, a specific example is that both blue and orange lizards produce more corticosterone in dry years. Corticosterone is usually used as an indicator of stress. Orange lizards are wired so that high corticosterone suppresses the production of testosterone. But blue lizards with high corticosterone still produce really high levels of testosterone. Hmm. So this is, oh God, I just, I, I love the, the simplicity of it so much because corticosterone by itself is known to decrease aggressiveness and territorial behavior in lizards and has been shown to increase activity in some other animals, rats, sparrows, turtles. While testosterone has been shown to increase aggressiveness. So you can see there's a, a little bit of a antagonistic relationship with corticosterone, decrease aggressiveness, testosterone, increase aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. What does this all mean for how these lizards behave? All right. Mm -hmm. We're going to imagine a dry season. There's no mm -hmm. rain. All the tree lizards are stressed. They're producing a shit ton of corticosterone because obviously they're all going to die. It's dry and they don't like it mm. in blue lizards their testosterone remains high and the be they behave in the same aggressive territorial way that they would in a wet season however orange lizards have high corticosterone and low testosterone they don't care to bother defending even a small territory and the corticosterone is telling them to move. They're, it's like, ah, fuck, everything's scary. Everything's bad. Gotta move. Gotta go. Hmm. Gotta go. Gotta go. So the orange lizards do. They only spend a day or two at a particular site before moving on. And they don't engage with any aggressive lizard that they meet. But if you imagine a wet year, the lizards aren't stressed. They're like, this is chill. I love wet years. It's going to be a good year. They... So the orange lizards will have lower corticosterone because they're chill, it's wet, and that means they have higher testosterone. That makes the orange lizards more sedentary, and they're willing to sort of just stick it out in a small territory. That's interesting, because that, like, that's, that's the inverse relationship that my mind had uh, when you first mentioned that, because I was thinking, like, you know, resource uh, competition and all that. But it's, it's the opposite, actually. That's, that's really neat. Well, I mean, so they, I'm not, I, I guess I'd have to be a full lizard researcher to be sure. Um, but I think 
Yeah, in a in a wet year, there are more resources. So they can just like hang out in a small territory and they're just like not as good at fighting as blue lizards. Mm -hmm. But if it's a wet year, the blue lizards probably care about fighting less because there's enough resources. Um, But when it's a dry year, you know, the blue lizards are probably way more defensive of what they've Mm -hmm. got. And the orange lizards have to like move around a lot because they can't fight for shit and -hmm. they need to find resources. So, yeah, I just I mean, I cannot believe that we have discovered this and that it's so simple a mechanism. Like it's a very few things and ever, you know, I don't know. You might be like, well, yeah, lizards are very simple creatures, but they're fucking not. <laughs> they're very complicated. <laughs> all biology is so complicated. And it amazes mm. me that all of these things are true and caused by so few hormones. Okay. So I guess that's it for those tree lizards. So uh, I briefly want to mention another type of lizard also in the southwest of the United States called, hopefully lovingly, the side blotched lizard. And I know you might be sick Mm. of lizards, but this species is worth mentioning. It has five genders and is currently considered as having, quote unquote, the most genders, Uh, mm, which is just based on their differing physical appearance correlating with differing behaviors. Obviously, there are a bunch of problems with that definition, but I wanted to put it out here as a fun fact for all you biological essentialists. This lizard has five genders. No arguing with it. It is a documented truth. Deal with it. Yeah. Also, the side lizard has both males and females of multiple colors. Were you getting sick of species that only had one female gender? I know mm-hmm. I was. Yeah. So the three males and two females... I will refer to based on the color of their throat. Orange males are very aggressive, high testosterone, defend large territories that overlap with a bunch of female home ranges. Blue males have less testosterone, defend a smaller territory with just one female. And yellow males hang out around orange male territories and sneak in to meet with females. Um, The two different kinds of female side blotched lizards um, are orange and yellow. Orange females are territorial, like orange males, and they will Hmm. distance themselves from other females. Uh, They have territories that are at least five square feet. Yellow females are less territorial and can live a little bit closer. Uh, Some of their territories are just two and a half square feet. Hmm. Uh, Both females also have different egg sizes, with orange females laying more small eggs and yellow females laying fewer large eggs. Um, Which is basically all I want to say about them. and the, the main takeaway points are, yeah, some species have multiple female genders. And also that this is the species that people refer to when they talk about, like, the most genders found in a wild animal, which is ridiculous again. But it's a, a, a good fact to have in your back pocket to pull out when yeah. someone's like, uh, animals only have like two genders. You'd be like, uh, side blotched lizard, five genders. Yeah, maybe in females, nerd. <laughs> Yep, yep. Okay, so I have just one more example, and it is a new animal. It is not fish. It is not lizards. It is white-throated sparrows. Ooh. Um, like me, you were probably hoping for some examples of multiple genders in mammals. Unfortunately, these examples seem to be rare and heavily disputed, um, mm-hmm. and I, I briefly just want to, again, go over for the sake of, like, 
science isn't always the be all end all fact and truth. So mm. there are three obvious reasons that I thought of um, for why people aren't really talking about this in mammals. So one, all the gender differences we've discussed have correlated with different physical appearance. Differing appearance is more readily observable in species like fish, lizards, and birds, which have genomes that predispose them to producing distinct colors and patterns. Um, furthermore, I mean, the differing colors and patterns are more likely to be linked to underlying biological differences, which is not true of many species. So you can think of, I mean, something like dogs. You can have a black dog and a white dog and a brown dog. And the fact that they are black or white or brown has nothing to do with any of their other behaviors. Like the, yeah. the, the genetic changes that cause the color are not also causing changes in behavior. And from the examples that I've given so far, you can see that like there is some genetic link in lizards um, between how they're colored and how they behave. Mm -hmm. So um, the second reason is all of the examples I've given are based on very distinct coloring, not gradations of color. There's no example of like a half orange, half yellow female that behaves intermediately. Um, and I believe that people are more willing to accept these definitions of gender when the differences are so obvious and so distinct that you can easily categorize them. Um, it's... I. <laughs> Unfortunately, for a lot of people, even really educated ones, accepting a spectrum of genders is messy and even using a phrase like spectrum of genders probably results in an animal behavior paper being immediately rejected for publication because that's still the world we live in. Um, finally, the third reason is even in mammals that have obvious and distinct coloring differences, uh, I'm betting people are just scared to describe them as having multiple genders. Like, my thought is that the closer we get to humans, the more reluctant scientists are to draw conclusions about gender. Like, saying a lizard has four genders is very different from documenting four genders of bonobos. Like, that's way more likely to start a media shitstorm and you're going to get oh, yeah. all kinds of shit for it and whatever. And um, then you have to fight for your funding. And yeah, exactly. And yeah. and that's the problem is that scientists, I mean, there's a a very strong incentive to just publish as many papers as you can. And I can totally see I'm not I'm not I don't I don't know any labs that have done this, but I can totally see a graduate student coming in and being like, hey, has anyone ever looked into there being like more than two genders and gorillas and like the grad students PI being like, oh, yeah, no, that's totally true. But we don't talk about it because no one wants to publish that shit. So hmm. the incentives are fucked. Um, and that, yeah, I think all of these things together are probably why we do not yet have good examples of uh multiple genders in animals that are closer to humans okay anyway let's get away from how depressing <laughs> it is being a scientist and how uh non-factual <laughs> science can be sometimes and talk about these sparrows so oh, yeah. the white-throated sparrows i'm going to describe are from ontario and they have four genders two male and two female males can have either a white stripe or a tan stripe 
White striped males are most aggressive and territorial. Tan striped males are less aggressive and can't defend territory from a white striped male. Uh, similarly, females also have either a white stripe or tan stripe. White striped females, like white striped males, are aggressive and defend territory. Tan striped females don't give a fuck about territory, and any other sparrow can get into her personal space bubble with no difficulty at all. Um, in white-throated sparrows, 90% of mating pairs are between opposites, a white-striped bird with a tan-striped bird. But why? Hmm. Now, I, out of curiosity, like, did you see any instances of, like, male-male or female-female pairs that are, like, you know, white and tan-striped and all that? Oh, well, so I didn't see... From what I, I read, and of course I'm not I'm not now an expert on right. <laughs> these fucking sparrows, but I did not see any documented cases of same-sex pairings in this species. But I wouldn't be surprised if pairs of females exist, because it would be super easy for one or both of them to get pregnant. Um mm -hmm. white striped males are known for <laughs> the phrases extra pair fertilizations. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning white striped males will sometimes leave the territory with their paired female to go fertilize other females. Okay. So imagine you have a pair of female birds. They want babies. They just let one of these white striped males in and they'll know that he just goes back to his original territory after fertilizing one or both of them. And they're left in peace to raise their gay bird babies. <laughs> um, oh, and also, OK, so now that I'm talking about it. One more cool fact that I absolutely anthropomorphize, I freely admit, is that sometimes tan-striped females don't pair at all. They will just nest in a paired white-striped male's territory. The white-striped male will fertilize the tan-striped female's eggs, and she'll raise them herself with no other help, yeah. while the fertilizing male goes back to his pair. So... I think that that's very cool. Way to go, single mom birds that are like, you know, yeah. I don't really want a partner at all, so I'm going to just do this myself. That's, Hell yeah. That's pretty fucking rad. You're valid, single mother bird. Yeah, you, you are, are valid. valid. So, um, right. The original question is, why are 90% of mating pairs between opposites? You get a white striped bird and a tan striped bird. As I mentioned, white striped birds are both... Whether it's male or female, they're both aggressive and good at defending territory. Wouldn't that be like the best combination? Because you get to defend your territory. You're super aggressive. But mm -hmm. it turns out no, um, because tan striped birds, whether male or female, provide more parental care. So huh. if you have a pair of white striped sparrows, um, a male and a female, uh, they'll have like really well defended territory, but no one's going to care for their babies, which of course is a problem. Right. And then of course... If it's not obvious, two tan-striped birds is a real bad idea because they'll be unable to hold a territory at all and another bird would just come in and, like, kill all their eggs. So right. that's why you have to have one of each. You got one that's good at being a parent and one that's good at making sure that the babies don't die. So it turns out that one tan-striped bird, one white-striped bird, that's the way to go. Which one is male or female doesn't matter much, as long as you have one bird that will care for babies and one bird that is good at defending. Interesting. Um, however, you know, little minor side note, it is true that the female white striped bird is not as good at defending as a white striped male, uh, but that problem gets offset by a tan striped male being able to help defend. 
um, a white striped female with a tan striped male is just as good at repelling attackers as a white striped male and tan striped female. Um, because tan striped females, like I said before, uh, do not give a fuck. Any other sparrow can get close to them and they're like, all right, I mean, sure, whatever. You do you. They are the chillest of the mm -hmm. white-throated sparrow genders. <laughs> um, okay, so that's... That. What a sentence. Yeah. That's um, it for sparrows and examples. But before we end the episode, I do want to point out one last little thing. There is an underlying pattern in all of these examples. You might have already picked up on it, but these animals are defined as having different genders based on their physical appearance correlating with their underlying biological wiring and behaviors. And, oh, God, in, in researching this and uh, reading all these examples, it just it comes so close to giving a biologically based defense for the spectrum of genders in humans. The main argument I can see, I guess, people having is that humans have no genetically based coloring or patterning differences that correlate to their gendered behavior, like in, you know, the sparrows and the lizards and the fish. But even if you're a ridiculous person who wants to make some stupid argument about Women, you know, certain characteristics in women, like they have to have boobs and certain fat distributions and certain genitalia, you would be forced to define at least one more gender based on people who don't fit into your rigid male or female category. So like flat chested women with no hips exist. But if you talk to that person above with that shitty definition who defined women as having boobs, etc., they would still call her a woman if it was like their mom or their sister or whatever. Uh, of course, <laughs> the other thing is there are biological essentialists who want to define your gender based on chromosomes or genitalia or whatever the fuck they're going on about these days. But even mm. those people would have to admit to at least one more gender since some people do not have exactly two X chromosomes or exactly one X and one Y. And some people don't have genitalia that is readily classified into the binary categories of penis or vagina. So they, I mean, there's no way, the argument doesn't hold up because if you want to say the things are exactly two, there are literal facts about like scientifically conducted studies that show that there's more than this, those two binaries. Right. Um, so for me, I have no problem extrapolating out to argue for multiple genders in humans based on how we choose to appear instead of our genetic appearance. So mm -hmm. how we choose to appear and how that correlates with behavior and our underlying biology. If we accept that a certain physical appearance that correlates to certain behavior defines a gender it becomes obvious that humans are also animals with more than two genders. But okay, mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> this is veering into the territory of how we define <laughs> gender, which could be a whole episode or a whole series unto itself. Oh, yes. But I wanted, I just, I had to leave you with some food for thought. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I certainly did, yes. <laughs> uh, and hopefully all of you did as well. So uh, thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us for our next episode. Uh, do know that if you want to join our Discord and chat with like-minded listeners, information is in the show notes, as well as links for donating to support our show. 
Um, so yeah, that's it. See you next time. See you next time.